Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, how our hearts are full. Just hearing about the goodness of God, how his work is going forward, how he comforts his people, how he brings blessings, how he walks with his children. And we're so thankful to have such a God. And we can sing and behold his glory and proclaim him. And whether it's across the street or around the world, the gospel is good news of great joy for all the people. And so may we continue to be a church that's faithful and distributing and proclaiming and letting people know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Just want to bring to your attention, uh, ask you to add to your prayer list this week as you pray for one another and as you pray for the needs of the church to add Diane Kinemont to your prayer list this week. She is hospitalized with pneumonia and COPD. Many of you may remember Diane, who was with us for a long time, is living down now down in Southern California. And so just continue to pray. As we get an update, we'll try to let you know how she is doing. I want to bring to your attention as well, especially men, and a special event that's coming up on March 16th. March 16th, beginning at 8 a.m. and going till approximately 1 p.m. We're joining together, or I've been invited to join with Pastor Patrick Mather at the Grace Baptist Church here in town. And we're going to have a, the Godly Men Conference. So there's no charge. They're going to provide breakfast. They're going to provide lunch. There's no charge. There's four pastors that are coming together. We're going to be giving messages out of the book of Colossians. And I encourage you to come and have a time of fellowship on March 16th. And we'll start putting brochures up March 16th, beginning at 8 a.m. at Grace Baptist Church here in Oroville. And if you haven't already had the chance, before we get into the sermon, please make sure your cell phones are turned to silent so we don't have any unnecessary interruptions during our time in the Word this morning. To those of you joining us online this morning, good morning. Please receive the greetings of all of us gathered here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're glad that you've taken the time to be with us to worship our great God together. And now as we get into a time in the Word, I invite you wherever you are to turn to your copy of God's Word to Matthew 21. And thanks for being with us this morning, and let's study God's Word together. When a man named Christian Herter was governor of Massachusetts in the mid-1950s, he was in the midst of a very rigorous re-election campaign. And one day after a busy morning chasing votes and having missed lunch, he arrived at a church for a rally that also included a church barbecue. It was late afternoon, and he was famished. So as Governor Herder moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman serving chicken. And she put on one piece on his plate and turned to the next person in line. Uh, excuse me, Governor Herder said. Do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said. I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken per person. But I'm so starved, the governor said. Sorry, one piece per chicken, uh, one piece per customer. Uh, Governor Herter was a modest and unassuming man, but he decided that maybe this was the time to throw his weight around a little bit. And so he leaned in and he said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she replied, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along, mister. <laughs> you know, the, the question of authority and who's in charge 
is a challenging one that reaches to every organization, every family, every group, every government, every church. It's an issue that affects and influences every aspect of our lives. We even have expressions in our, in our daily lives that point to the issue of authority. Who says? According to whom? Why? Much of life happens around the question, who is in charge and who gets to decide? And as we get to our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 21, we'll see that even the Lord Jesus Christ was not immune to challenges to his authority. He was the son of man. He was the Messiah. He came to redeem a people for God. But as he's continuing in his activities in what we know as Passover week, on that famous week 2,000 years ago, he's being challenged. Now, he himself has been challenging the authority of the temple leaders, of the sacrifices. He's been challenging the way things are being done. But they see their status quo as being threatened, and so they cannot fail to respond to Jesus and what he is doing and in his parables and his teachings and his acts of judgment. And so all of that brings us to the passage that we're going to consider this morning, Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. And in honor of our great God and his holy word, I invite you to stand for the reading of our text this morning. And we see in God's word, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered him, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord given for our edification this morning. Let us receive it for its intended purposes. Please be seated. Now, so far in our study in Matthew 21, Jesus has shown he's prophet and priest and king. He's come riding in to the temple, riding into Jerusalem as a king, but a unique type of king, one who will conquer sin and death, one who is laying the foundation for the work of the church that will continue until his return in glory and great power. He came in bringing peace, but later he will come in judgment and bringing vindication of his people. He enters into the temple, and as prophet and king, he cleanses the temple and rebukes all that is happening there. Warning of judgment to come if they did not repent and turn back to the Lord. He's cursed a fig tree, judging its lack of fruit and warning against the hypocrisy and the sin of presumption that was so prevalent among the practitioners in the temple. He truly was the king, the prophet, and the, Lord, and, and the priest over Israel and the fulfillment of all that had come before him. And he'll continue this week, that holy week, and his ministry of teaching and declaring and confronting, which will lead to his arrest, trials, suffering, death, and resurrection. And as we prepare to enter into a time of study in God's word, let us turn to him 
asking for his guidance. And so, Father, as we consider this word that comes from you, we need you as our great teacher, guiding us by the power of your Holy Spirit. For, Father, we are but clay. And unless you give the understanding and unless you give eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, we will pass over these words without fully grasping what they mean. So in these holy moments, Father, would you banish all distractions from our minds? Would you cause us to focus on who you are as the high and lifted up one, the one who is to be exalted above all? And by your spirit, would you teach us now as we consider your word and as we humble ourselves before you, asking for your guidance in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn in your copy or your sermon outline that's in your bulletin or perhaps that you have on the church app. If you've not already put it on your phone, I encourage you this week to put it on your phone. It's a useful tool for sharing with others what we're learning Sunday by Sunday. But our first major point this morning is the challenge. Whose authority? The challenge. Whose authority? We begin with verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Now, once again, Jesus enters the temple. This is just a day or two after he has gone in and started overthrowing tables and chasing out buyers and sellers. But the temple compound was so big and the week was so important that certainly there were selling and buying that was continuing that week. He had acted out a judgment that would be a greater judgment if they did not repent. But we find him again back in the temple. And between now and what we'll get to as we get into chapter 22, he will give several teachings concerning his growing confrontation with the religious leaders. And the challenge has already begun, as we've seen back in chapter 21, verses 15 and 16, where they're commanding Jesus to tell his followers and those worshiping him to be silent. And that'll be the first of several confrontations that will build and escalate as this week unfolded 2,000 years ago. But they find him teaching in the temple, which we would expect. After all, he was a good teacher. He came to teach and preach and heal the sick and announce the kingdom of heaven. And as a good teacher, he knows that his job is not yet done. He has not yet given everything that he came to give. He has not yet fulfilled all righteousness that will happen throughout that week that will lead him to being put on the cross, that will lead him being the sin sacrifice for those he came to save. There's still more to teach about the Messiah, the nature of the Messiah, what he came to accomplish on that first coming during his lifespan of 30-some-odd years. He was a good teacher. He taught about God's power, about forgiveness, about how to walk with God. He talked about the coming judgment. He talked about the kingdom of God that has come initially and will be shown in its fullness when he returns. And he has spoken with confidence and authority, unlike the religious leaders of his day. In all ways, he showed he was truly a good teacher. And the people were longing to hear a good word. They were tired of languishing under Roman oppression and high taxation. They wanted a sure word of hope. But as he's doing what he's doing, and as he's carrying it on, and it's moving to completion, he is now definitely a threat to the status quo. He is bringing dramatic change. And as anyone who has ever tried to bring any type of change to any type of organization, you know that there's always resistance to change. Because there are those who have certain influence. There are those who have a certain status. And if that is challenged, they don't want change because they don't see change as something better. And that was how the religious leaders in first century were looking at it. 
So we shouldn't be surprised. They're coming. They're challenging. They're feeling threatened. They want to know what's going on. Jesus has already, as we have seen in his various teachings, given the true meaning of the law, the true understanding of God's word, how he, is, he came to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He has warned against the teachings of the elders, those added on things that men were adding to, to the law that God had clearly given. And who is it that comes and sees him in this confrontation? The elders of the people, the very ones whose teachings he had been challenging. And so as he's there in the temple, we see that indeed it is the chief priests and the elders of the people. And this is, a, this is shorthand for Matthew for really talking about the religious leadership in the first century. At times there'll be references to the chief priests and the elders, at times to the chief priests and the Sadducees, at times to the scribes and the Pharisees, at times to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But all of them were involved in leadership in what we know as the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees themselves in control over the temple, the chief priests controlling the operations that are going on, and the elders were those laymen who were trained and, and able to lead the people and who were members of the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the Jewish people. For them, the temple was under their control. From their standpoint, they were God's leaders. They were the ones that were to control what was going on. So who was this Galilean rabbi to come into the temple and act like he owns the place? Who is this guy who performs miracles in the temple, who acts out judgments against the activities that are going on in the temple, who receives the worship of adoring children in the temple, and now is even teaching once again people in the temple? Who is this one who has come? And I find it interesting that Jesus is doing what he's supposed to do. He's teaching. And I find it interesting that right when he's in the midst of teaching, come the chief priest and the elders of the people, and they have no trouble interrupting him as he's teaching. They come up and ask, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him who was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? There's actually two separate questions here. By what authority are you doing this, and who gave you this authority? And so that gets us to the heart of the issue that we consider this morning. Much of life is centered around the question of authority and power. Think about it. Almost all the problems and issues and challenges and difficulties that we have in our daily lives and our relationships usually are somehow over the issue of authority. Who is in charge? Who gets to make the decisions? Where did that authority come from? Why should I do so, such and such and listen to so and so? But it's good for us at this point to take a step back and recognize who our God is. We've just sang about behold our God seated on his throne. Well, what, what is this God like? Well, among other things, he is a God of order. He's a God of authority. And he delegates authority for all the different realms of life in which we live. There's authority in government where God raises up some leaders and lowers others and the the purpose of government is to provide protection and punish evil. And those that God raises up, he will hold to account. And so what that does for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is it should cause us to relax. Because all of us have lived long enough to know that there have been some leaders we like and some leaders we haven't liked, but Jesus still sits on the throne. And so we can relax about that, put our hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He's in charge of the authority of government. There is authority in the economy as managers and bosses and, 
and others have authority over those who work for their respective enterprises and the relationship that is involved in the work relationship. There's authority in the family where men are to be leaders and priests in their homes and parents are to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There's authority in the church as God raises up those elders and pastors and teachers and leaders who govern the people of God. This is all part of God's good organizing of the universe over which he is king. And they were all done to promote his common grace among all people. And done well, they work for the welfare of the people and even their protection to promote human flourishing. That is why then our commandment is to pray for those that are in authority over us, whatever level it might be, because they will be held accountable to God. And even as we might even affirm that that is true, and even we might recognize the value of having that, that God in his common grace has set up these guardrails, has set up these protections for our society, in our family, in our churches, in our greater community, I think it's safe to say that one of the defining characteristics of our time is rebellion against authority. Rebellion against every type of authority. Rejection against every one of those aforementioned authorities that, that God has put in realms. I mean, think about how people talk about those in positions of influence. Whether it would be in the governor's office, whether it be in the mayor's office, whether it's the chief of police. How do people respond to authority? How do they think about authority? What do they think about marriage and the family? What do they think about what's happening in the church? At every one of these realms, in our greater society, there is rebellion against these authorities. And I would ask the question, are we better off because of it? And I think to ask the question is to answer it. No. We are not a society that is getting better. We're a society that is starting to fray and is being divided and is showing signs of crumbling. And in large measure, it's because uh, we reject and rebel authority. But we need to dig a little deeper and say, but oftentimes it starts with us. What's going on within our own hearts? You know, by nature, we're in rebellion against God. And we have to have that rebellion tamed by God, the Holy Spirit. We want to set our own pace. We want to make our own decisions. We want to say, Who's, who are you to say? Why should I believe you? You can't tell me what to do. These are expressions that are just common in our everyday language. Well, it was not that different in first century Palestine, first century Jerusalem. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They didn't see authority as something that could be intrinsic. Authority was something that was given by, from someone to someone else who is seen as having the right to give that authority. So they come to Jesus and they say, what earthly authority gave you permission to do this? Now we've had a chance to journey with Jesus and journey with the apostles and his followers for a couple of years now through the Gospel of Matthew. We know where this authority has come from and we know that Jesus has this authority. He knows that he was sent by the Father. We know that as well. But those with whom he was interacting in the first century, they did not. They did not recognize it. So how would he best communicate to them that, in fact, he was the Messiah sent from God? And this would not be the first time that Jesus would have his authority challenged. A couple of times earlier in Matthew, he was asked, well, what sign will you give us to prove that you are the Messiah? He said, we don't believe you just by what you teach or what you say. What will you do? And he said, I'm only going to give you one sign, and that is the resurrection, as symbolized by the prophet Jonah. 
So they come to him, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And that expression comes up a couple of times in this passage. And who gave you this authority? Well, these things would certainly include what we have studied the past few weeks. Him riding in on a donkey, on a, acting out as a, as a sort of king coming into the city, showing that he's coming in peace now because he's not coming in on a war horse, but he's coming in on a donkey. He will return one day on a white horse, bringing judgment. These things would include acting out judgment against the temple, overturning the tables, that, that word that we said has a double meaning, it, not only physically overturning tables, but the idea of overturning the existing system. He's received worship, he's healed the blind, he's healed the lame, he cursed the fig tree. Those are the things that would be included in the these things that they're asking about. What authority are you doing these things? Because they're starting to recognize that Jesus is making some audacious claims. He's performing acts, he's giving words that belong to God alone. And so they try to set him up for a trap. By asking what authority and who gave it to you, they're trying to ensnare Jesus. Obviously, their goal is to do away with him. After all, he's the one that has come to challenge the status quo. And they're going to continue over the next several chapters as we walk through them and look at what happened to Jesus on that last holy week or that holy week 2,000 years ago. They're going to try to entrap him again and again. They're trying to get rid of him. And so here's the, the trap goes something like this. Well, if he claims some earthly authority, some earthly authority gave me the right to do this, in their eyes, it would already be seen as inferior because after all, they were the human authorities in charge. And none of them had given him any authority to do these things. On the other hand, if he claims that the authority is divine, that it comes from heaven, then they would have grounds to charge him with blasphemy and bring him to trial. Now, that's eventually what would happen. Jesus would be arrested and put on trial and executed because of his claim to deity. That was the charge against him. Jesus, the king of the Jews, he had said, I was the, I'm the son of man, using a reference from Daniel chapter 7 to show that he was divine. By what authority are you doing these things? This is a trap. And it's a direct challenge to Jesus. They thought they were the ones who were in control of the things of God. After all, they could proclaim to the people, the Romans recognize us, the people recognize us, we recognize ourselves, but who are you? Who do you think you are? Why are you doing these things? And so as we summarize what we have seen so far in Matthew, it helps us to draw back and take a bigger picture because what has Jesus been doing in Matthew? And over and over again, he's been showing his authority. He says, I have the proper interpretation of the law of God. I show that I'm the Messiah in word and action. I have authority over nature. I have authority over disease. I have authority over creation. I have authority over what's happening in this temple. He's acted out signs of judgment. But they don't recognize him. They don't recognize who he was. They don't recognize what he came to do. And all of that was predicted by the prophets that he would be rejected and John the Apostle picks up on that and affirms that as he writes in his own presentation of the gospel of Jesus in John chapter 1 said he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him 
he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we have the challenge. Whose authority? Which leads us to our second point, the counter. Is John from God? Now, Jesus could have responded to their challenges in any number of ways. He could have said, well, actually, I have all authority in heaven and earth, and so you need to bow down to me. But that was the very point of contention between them. And so they were not going to concede that point to them. To them, he was just this renegade Galilean preacher who showed up in the temple and acted like he belonged there. So Jesus doesn't take that route. Another potential route that Jesus could have taken is he could have said, don't some of you remember who I am? You know, I was that precocious 12-year-old boy that years ago came to the temple and taught with authority and amazed the religious leaders. And I even told my parents, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Well, I am that boy. 20 years later or whatever, 18 years later, however long ago it was, 12 years later. I'm that boy and I still must be about the business of my father's house. He doesn't answer that way. Instead, he enters into a dialogue with them and he responds in verse 24. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is using a common but very effective debate technique, dialogue technique that was used and known among the rabbis. You respond to a question with a question. You see, it's the use of questions that actually induce a deeper understanding of the issues at stake. It's a good evangelism tool. If you're talking to people, ask questions about where they come from, what they believe, what, what is important to them. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's asking, he's answering a question with the question. You know, I heard an old football coach who said one time, when you're about to be run out of town, get out in front and make it look like you're leading a parade. And there's a sense where Jesus knows that he's being challenged, but he's going to show that he's in charge. He's the one that's going to continue to lead this dialogue. Nothing will happen outside of his control. And so he responds with a question. He challenges the one, the ones who are challenging him. He's already shown he has authority in Matthew chapter 7. It says that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. That's a divine authority that only God has. So he heals the man. We know already, and we had it referred to in the wonderful video we saw, that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. But for those with Jesus in the first century, it was not yet clear. They're threatened by this man. They're not favorably disposed to them, so he responds with a question in kind. He will condition his response, uh, their response to him based upon, I think I said it backwards. He will condition his response to them based on their response to him. Okay? <laughs> he's going to avoid falling into their trap. But he's going to force them into a sense to make a decision. And so he asks the question, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven? Or from man. Now we first saw the baptism of John way back in Matthew chapter, baptism of John back in Matthew chapter 3. We saw that it was a baptism of cleansing, it was a baptism of repentance, it was a baptism of preparation, it was a baptism of recognizing the sinful ways of the old ways and getting ready for the new way that was coming in. And that's why Jesus was baptizing them and saying, Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is about ready to do a new thing. The old ways you're no longer following. God's going to bring judgment upon you. Repent, be baptized, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was that preparation as John was the forerunner of the Lord. He taught. He pointed people to Jesus. He preached on righteousness. He preached on judgment. He called Israel to repent. He called Israel to be baptized. He called Israel to turn back to the ways of God that were now being revealed in God, Messiah. This meant that what they were doing at that time was not pleasing to the Lord. And so as John continued to preach, he taught on those things. He spoke bravely. He spoke with courage. He spoke truth to power to use a common language that we use today. And as a result, he was punished, was put to death. So as Jesus is returning the question now to them, he says, John's baptism, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? He's challenging them. This is a very clever, I think, counterattack against the religious leaders. So as we've seen the, the counter, we now get to their problem as the chief priests and the leaders, the conundrum. If we say, the chief priests and the elders, in fact, were they're members of the Sanhedrin, as I've already said. They're both religious leaders. They were political leaders. And as political leaders, they, they enjoyed the power, the influence, the wealth. They were loath to take a clear position on any issue because they just wanted to keep the influence that they had. And there was a good money-making operation going on in the temple, and they didn't want to disrupt that. They wanted to continue to profit from it. They had a favorite position with the, with the Romans and even with the people, and they wanted to keep it that way. So as Jesus turns it back on them, they're now facing a very important dilemma. And we're privileged to have at least part of the conversation that went on among them. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus has put them now on the horns of a dilemma. They tried to trap him, but now he has outfoxed them. They're the ones that are being trapped. So we can understand the dialogue. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why don't you believe him? If we say that John was a prophet who was sent from God, that the baptism was something that needed to be undertaken, that then it meant a call to baptism, to be, baptized, to be repenting and to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus pointed, uh, John pointed all who would listen to Jesus. And if they say that John's baptism was from heaven, they'd have to admit that they were wrong about everything. If John's baptism was indeed sent from heaven, they'd have to recognize that they had strayed from the ways of God. They'd have to recognize they were wrong not to repent. They'd have to recognize they were wrong, that they didn't prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. But it's a clever question. Because if John did come from God, Jesus is saying, so did I. Because the first one pointed to the second. It was John the prophet who, as he appeared in the, in the wilderness, saw Jesus and cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If they accepted John, they would have to accept Jesus. But this they would not do. They liked the lucrative status quo. 
we see the bigger picture and we wish that they had paid closer attention to Jesus who warned about the attraction of riches, who warned about running after the wealth of this world, who had said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? They said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe? But on the other hand, if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. They'd like the power that they had over the temple, over the sacrifices, over the way of life, over the earning potential. So why were they so afraid here of John? Well, it might be hard for us to imagine now because we have 2,000 years of history to look back on and we see the influence of one over the influence against the other. But if we were back at that moment in time, in the first century, it's, I think it's safe to say that in Jerusalem, John was probably more popular than Jesus. Because Jesus had left to go to Galilee to spend three years in teaching his ministry and had not spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. Whereas John remained around Jerusalem, continued to confront the religious leaders, and for that reason was put to death. He, John is the one who showed up in the wilderness after there had been 400 years of silence. Now, if you haven't heard from God for 400 years and suddenly a man shows up in the wilderness dressed like the prophet Elijah, acting like the prophet Elijah, calling people to repentance, sounding like a prophet, it would have gotten their attention. He was doing what the prophets of old were doing. He was declaring that the day of the Lord had come and the time was ready to get ready for deliverance and salvation. And if that was the message he was preaching, he also was a threat to the status quo. He challenged what was going on like the prophets of old. And as a result, he was arrested. He was killed. And he was seen by the people as a martyr. But many had believed in his message. Many had followed him. He had people that were baptized. They had people that did expect the response. As they questioned him, well, who gave you this authority? What are you doing? He, he made reference to the prophet Isaiah. And even said he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was held in regard by many in the first century. He was respected as a brave prophet of God. And they're afraid then if they go against this respected prophet of God, what will happen to them who are in control of the temple? Maybe they could handle this little known Galilean, after all, who spent most of his time outside of Jerusalem, but this man who had become a legend in their town they were afraid of how the people would respond. And so in that, we see their cowardice. In verse 27, so they answered, we don't know. The religious leaders wanted to stay in power. But in order to do that, they had to make sure that they didn't have any dissension, and so they looked for the easy way out. At least that's what they thought they were doing. Instead of deciding, they chose a sort of Political expediency. Let's choose not to choose. Let's not make it public because they feared man more than they feared God. And we see in their conversation, they discussed the importance of John. But they didn't say what they really thought because they feared what the people would say. They had added many things in their worship services that were the elders, traditions of the elders that were not honoring to God, but they were still trapped. So they wouldn't speak the truth. 
if they'd said what they really knew and felt, they were either going to offend the followers of John or they were going to have to kneel before Jesus and confess him as Lord and follow him. But they chose not to choose. And in doing so, they made clear what their choice was. Said, we do not know, they said. What do you mean you don't know? Aren't you the religious leaders of the day? Don't the people look to you for the offering of the sacrifices and the prayers and what's going on in the temple and the accumulation of wealth? Isn't that what leaders are supposed to do? They're supposed to decide? Isn't that the cost of leadership that you have to make those tough decisions? But in a sense, they did decide. Because by saying they did not know, they were saying they denied that John came from God. They're just trying to save their face. They're trying to save their political position. They're not displaying true leadership. And it's a remark that as we look around the life of Jesus, those that come to hear him, those that follow him, those that oppose him, those that claim to be in his inner circle, we see a lot of cowards. The religious leaders wanted the power. They wanted the prestige. They wanted the benefits. But they, liked it. they didn't want to follow this Messiah. And they didn't want to have him take them down. Judas had been with Jesus, but perhaps not liking the direction the kingdom of heaven was going or what Jesus was bringing betrays him for a handful of silver coins. The disciples themselves, they pledged their allegiance. Oh, if all else fail, we'll go with you. And yet at the moment of arrest, they all flee. Pontius Pilate, recognizing the political difficulty that he has, is trying to figure out a way to deal with Jesus, and so sends him to Herod. Herod deals with Jesus and doesn't want to really deal with him, so sends him back to Pilate. Where was the leadership? And the fact remains is that they were ignoring the true leadership that was actually there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back a number of years, as, as I look at some of the trends, if you look at books that sell, one of the main topics is leadership. How do you have good leadership? How do you develop leadership? How do you create leaders? How do you identify leaders? Become the leader you were meant to be. And all these different titles of books of leadership, conferences and seminars and books and Bible courses and seminary classes, all talking about leadership. And I think what that's saying is because there's a lack of leadership in our larger culture, a lack of leadership within the family, a lack of leadership in the spiritual realm. There's a need for people who are grounded in the word of God, for men to stand up and be men of God that their families need, that their churches need, that their communities need. There was an article that I've been browsing over. It's actually a, a podcast. The title of the podcast comes from the, the Gospel Coalition. says, Why Are Communities need your strong marriage I love it the way that we live impacts beyond just the immediate realm that we're in our communities need strong Christian marriages to have an influence there's a need for leadership there's a need for for those to stand on the principles of God and do what God has called them to do and to exercise that proper authority that has been given to them by God but if leadership is important, so is fellowship. <laughs> Making up a word, I know. As believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared to follow. We need to be prepared to listen. We need to be prepared to go with the one who said, follow me. And as one who leads us through the path that we will have to life, that leads us ultimately to the gates of heaven. 
And if we do not have a pattern of following, following Christ, following the Bible, following the spiritual leadership that is over us, does it not at least cast some doubt at what we understand about the Bible and who we are in Christ? We really understand the call and the claim that is on our lives. And this author that I've been reading, he quotes from the life of E. Stanley Jones, a famous missionary of 100 years ago in India. He tells the story of a missionary who had lost his way in an African jungle. Maybe he'd been to Uganda, and he lost his way through there. He, and he couldn't find any landmarks. And the trail vanished, and suddenly he stumbled upon a small village, and a, a small hut in the village, and he asked the native living there if he could lead him out so he could get to where he needed to go. The native nodded, and he rose to his feet, and he walked directly into the bush. And the missionary followed on his heels. And for more than an hour, they hacked their way through a dense wall of vines and grasses and tree branches and bushes. And the missionary became worried, and he said, Are you sure this is the way? I don't see any path. And the African chuckled, and he said, Buana, Buana is the Swahili word for sir. Buana, in this place there is no path. I am the path. Think of first century. The chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, had the one right in front of them who was the pathway to heaven. The one who had come to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But because they feared the reaction of the crowd, they would not follow they will not accept that Jesus is the one who alone can lead us through the jungle of this world. That Jesus is the one who establishes the one and only path. That there are no other paths home. That it is Jesus who has come and carved out that path, which he said is narrow. For it is the way, the truth, and the life. The only path that leads to eternal life and brings us into inheritance in the eternal kingdom. And he bids us come. Follow me. Take up your cross. Die to yourself daily and follow me. Have you followed Jesus on that path? Are you sure that you're on that path? That the destiny of the pathway of your life will lead you to eternity in the presence of God? If not, with all who within the sound of my voice this morning, I plead with you, consider well the pathway you are on. Can that path support the real questions of life? Can that path give true answers to true problems? Can that path provide answers that will sustain and keep you when life really hurts? Come to Jesus. Bow before him and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you as the one who died for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. Take away my sins, Lord. I confess them, and I ask you to change me. You are the path. Lead me to walk on it. Well, in response, in response to the cowardice of the religious leaders, we finish with the comeback. Then I won't tell you. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. One side had asked a couple of questions. The other side said, well, I'll respond with a question. If you answered, I'll answer your questions. The first party refused to do so. The second party says, I'm not going to answer you either. And by not responding to their question, just as, the Pharise uh, just as the religious leaders subtly rejected John, 
by the refusal to answer the question. Jesus is subtly affirming his deity as coming from God by not acquiescing to their authority. He knows that he came from God. He knows that he came as the messenger of God, as the Messiah of God, as the fulfiller of God's plan. He was the path. Years ago, there was a Puritan writer named Matthew Henry. He was a deep writer. We still use many of his writings today, if you have the time to work through all of his argumentation, very tight, very depth in, in depth, but a brilliant man. Well, he went to London, and during his studies and his ministry, he met a young lady of nobility who was also a woman of wealth, and they fell in love. And she went to her father and said if she could have permission to marry him, and he said, well... He's got no background, and you don't know where he's come from. And she said, yes, I know, but I know where he's going, and I want to go with him. The religious leaders are looking at the Son of Man in the temple. They say, who is this Galilean? We don't know his background. Not knowing that he had the greatest background of all, he had come from the Father, he had come from heaven, but they wouldn't see it. But if you have eyes today to see who Jesus is and the truth that he has brought and the victory that he has won and the Lord that he is, then you know where he's going. Let's go with him. From this point forward, at this point in Matthew 21, as we get into chapter 22, Jesus is going to give three parables that speak of the nature of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to show that the people of his day rejected what he came to do, but he shows what he did come to do. He will continue in showing that he is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king of Israel. He's going to show that something greater than the temple is here. But as we prepare to move towards those passages, what are some lessons we can learn from today? Well, because Jesus is our authority, we will obey, follow, and honor him in all that we do, say, think, and plan. May that be your prayer this week. As your eyes open in the morning, Lord, today, all for you. Secondly, because both John and Jesus proclaimed the plan and truth of God, we will not shy away from sharing it with those around us. If we're in the Lord, what do we have to fear? What can they really do to us. Thirdly, because to fear God is better than fearing man, we ask God to strengthen and encourage us, and we are tempted to be afraid, and we are tempted often. But in that temptation, go to the word of God and say, in Christ I stand, because in Christ I have all I need, and I have the message that not only changes my life, but all who will have ears to hear it. And if it should come to pass that it gets more and more difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ when earthly authorities threaten us because of our allegiance to Christ. We will stand firm in the truth of God. After all, he is ultimately the one who has all authority. May we bow before that authority today and every day until he returns. Let us pray. Father, as we contemplate Jesus, and having all authority, we recognize that the temptation percolates in our hearts 
to want to grab a little bit of that authority for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to resist that temptation and to just fall into the arms of mercy and grace and divine providence and say, I'm so glad that Jesus is in charge. And as we walk through this week, and as we make decisions, and as we interact, and as we go places, may we do it mindful that we are to be on the path that you have led us on, that you have paved before us, so that we would truly continue to walk in the way and the truth and the life with the light of Jesus shining on the way. And may we be pleasing to you as you strengthen and enable us. In Jesus' name, amen.